I'm your host, Ken Lane, and this is the show where I bring on stellar guests from across the API universe to discuss, debate, and solve the latest topics around APIs and API first. All right, here we are again, another episode of Breaking Changes. Uh, pretty excited today to have Melissa Benua from MParticle with me. She's the Director of Engineering at MParticle, focused on platform engineering and dev test SecOps which I'm really keen on diving into. Thanks for being with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me today. So let's, uh, I, I want to get to know you a little bit better, but let's start with the basics when it comes to MParticle. How does MParticle simplify data infrastructure for, for, for organizations? Yeah, so data infrastructure is really our strong point. We're a CDP, right? We are a customer data platform. Uh, but our emphasis is on letting our customers manage their data infrastructure so that their data makes sense across all of their applications and their touch points, you know, not just from a marketing standpoint, but from a customer service, customer support, customer experience. Um, you know, our customers have something like 100, and, 100 different places where their data might be living across all their various appliances and touch points. And so our goal is to help them unify into a single point of truth so that it's easy to then take advantage of the data that they already have and do whatever it is they need to do to make their business, you know, business successful. And those data points are only growing, right? I mean, only this growing. Is just, this is getting worse. Yeah. Only growing. I remember a decade so, ago we used so, to talk about a decade ago we used to talk about Sorry. API or SDK fatigue, right? You'd have, you know, oh no, yeah. six or seven SDKs in your apps, and now you've got dozens to hundreds. Yeah, I mean, it's it's more than the average person can keep up with. And so what I mean, beyond just aggregation of this data, what are the immediate benefits to business users when it comes to this? Yeah, so it's absolutely way too much for any one person. So by being able to have all of your data in one place, it's just you're able to be orders of magnitude more efficient with everything that you do, right? From the decisions you make about what do my customers want to what's not working well for them to what's the next big thing we should be investigating in. Once you have a single point of truth, you can very easily start making these really intelligent insights as opposed to having to cobble together something across six or eight different dashboards. And then you've got data loss in transition and oh, it's duplicated here and oh, it's fragmented over here. We're missing this chunk here. Um, being able to simplify right make it simple it can be just just a huge enormous win especially whether you're a big company or a small company yeah i mean i as an individual have challenges managing my data just my personal but as a professional all the way up to you know what we do at postman as a company so uh and it's it's a big challenge so i'm thankful for folks like you and i'm i'm thankful that there's apis to help us do all of this so other than just core tech companies, what are some of the top industries that uh, MParticle services? Yeah, so we're really, really prominent in a lot of media, entertainment. If you watch streaming video, MParticle is probably involved in some way. Um, retail, we actually had a lot, a lot of our customers in retail were really sensitive to, um, to efficiency. A lot of, you know, QSR restaurants, uh, QS, <laughs> quick service restaurants, um, Anything. A lot of people. A lot of our customers and our uptake during you know during the COVID time was in retail stores. Who really it was really really important that they made their spend as efficient as possible. Um, and when every 
penny counts in your margin, you need something like MParticle to help make sure that you're spending every penny really intelligently. Well, and I would say just bringing it back home to my own selfish needs is this show, I'm syndicating it across so many different platforms and trying to pull together the numbers on what is success is a lot of work. And that's only exactly. going to get worse. The more we syndicate it, the more shows we do. So um, it's a, it's, it's, uh, as we said, I keep saying, uh, uh, it's a growing problem. I mean, it's just only going to get worse. So what type of folks within an organization tend to put your platform to work? Is it, is it primarily developers and more technical folks, or are there also business folks involved in this? There are. And so once upon a time, it used to be primarily primarily marketers and growth growth people, you know, ages ago. Um, and now we're seeing um, developers, uh, developers and, and, you know, of course, the product org along with them are, are our primary, you know, now our primary decision makers. They want something that's going to make their lives easier. Um, that's going to bring, you know, going to bring something to the table so they don't have to bring in all of the expertise you need to build out massively scaled distributed systems. That's a really specialized skill set. It's kind of hard to hire for, um, but it's definitely hard to build from the ground up, especially if that's not your core business. Um, and so we're finding that developers yeah. are becoming a really important part of our um, of our customer base. Yeah. And for us, that line between developer and business user is kind of the, the gap is closing and and mm -hmm. we're giving you know giving more tools and capabilities to business users but also helping developers be more efficient so um i think i mean our goal is to grow the number of developers out there and what and expand the definition of what a developer is so yes um uh, again thankful for what y'all are doing so before we dive into the technical details i've you know i've got some thoughts i would love love to dive into like devs test sec ops but i'd like to get to know you a little bit better so we can you know people can can base what you know what they uh what they hear based upon you know getting to know you a little bit so how long have you been at, at working at m particle yeah so i've been here uh, about four and a half years it doesn't it doesn't feel like that long mm -hmm. but but it has been um, and before I was here, I was at a really, really teeny, tiny startup. And before I was at a really teeny, teeny, tiny startup, um, I spent about six years at Microsoft on a couple of really big, really big systems, which probably, probably you've heard of being Xbox. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, definitely. So what, I mean, what put you on that journey? Why, how'd you end up at M particle just looking for more challenges or. Yeah. So when I was at Microsoft, I got exposed to hugely massively scaled distributed systems right we were talking a million requests per second in systems i was designing like that's that's a lot of that's a lot of api calls um and so i discovered i really loved huge scale distributed systems and the problems that came with them um and then when, when i was at my little tiny startup i discovered that i also really enjoyed um the systems of engineering work that went into helping helping a small set of people build these massively scaled systems, but from a teeny, teeny, tiny set of resources, taking advantage of what, you know, what the cloud has to offer and best practices in, um, in DevOps, right? DevOps was a movement that was just coming, just coming around as, as I was leaving Microsoft and joining my tiny startup. Um, and so I got really, really passionate about figuring out how do we enable little teeny, tiny teams to keep up with the Titans at Microsoft and Google and Facebook? Uh, because the tools are out there and little tiny teams are at their advantages. They have the agility 
Um, and, and the hunger, right? And the resource, sometimes resource constraints can be a really good thing in order to, um, to, to slingshot way ahead. And so that's what I came, basically came yeah. to Impartigal to do. I think I was the 50th employee or something like that. I was like the 20th engineer. Um, I came to join um, this system that was already pretty large scale, but to figure out how do we do, you know, 10X and 10X again without having to 10X and 10X again the engineering team in order to build a really cool, awesome, scaled, distributed service. Oh, I love it. The 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 web scale of APIs, and you nailed it as far as the purpose of APIs is to allow us to do what we do best, but then have access to all these other resources so that we can compete with the giants like that. And I just had a got off another call with a healthcare regulatory, so Center for Medicaid and Medicare, mm -hmm. and how do we uh, empower the small developers to compete with the, you know, healthcare giants when, and APIs is, is the answer. So um, I love hearing that. That's music to my ears. So how's your role changed since you've been in the four years you've been at MParticle? Yeah, so I wasn't the very first engineer hired in Seattle, but I was pretty close to it. Um, and I was hired to, you know, basically to spin up the office, to bring in a bunch of new engineers. Um, I was also hired to work on two things, right? To work on our our connectivity layer, so our, our especially our inbound and our outbound integrations, um, and to build up a whole team around there, uh, and also to work on our CI system and the build process and all of those uh, sort of cross-cutting initiatives. And so anybody who's been at a small startup knows sometimes you wear a lot of hats, especially when you're, you know, engineer 20 or thereabouts. And so it was, it was fine to wear a bunch of hats. Um, and so I started that, right? It took me about a year to hire my first engineer, and then I hired the first five. Um, and then it hit an inflection point about a year ago where we ramped like crazy and hired about 20. <laughs> and so, uh, and since then, I have started focusing my work down a little bit because once you get to a certain point, you can't wear so many hats anymore. It doesn't scale. Um, and so I'm focusing on, you know, a lot of our cross-cutting API infrastructure and build process, and, you know, all the all the good cross-cutting pieces that make up a, a solid platform engineering effort. Yeah, and you you describe you you put forth the the phrase the word or phrase I don't know actually what we call it so so DevOps, mm -hmm. which I've seen grown over the years to DevSecOps, but you mm -hmm. you put it as Dev Tests. SecOps. So do, what, what does that mean? It's a little bit of a tongue twister. So it's we like to joke, you can't hire you if you can't pronounce dev test SecOps with a straight face without <laughs> making any weird, making any weird uh, accidental words out of there. Um, but basically what it means is as a part of any continuous integration, continuous delivery effort, both testing and security are first party partners. You cannot have a continuous anything if you don't have at least a little security integrated in your, and your testing efforts integrated in. Otherwise, you're just continuously shipping garbage into production. And that's not actually what anybody wants. Oh, man, you are, you are speaking my language. So how do you, how do you ingrain this in your developers, in, in your team members? How does this become part of, of their DNA? Yeah, so I used to joke, I like to make the right thing really easy and the wrong thing really hard. Um, and by making the right thing easy, I mean, you shouldn't have to worry if you've broken the build or not, because you should just know it should just happen for you. And if you've broken it, it should just tell you, but also be blocking in a way that it's really obnoxious to work around. Not that you couldn't override it in theory, or because you always need the emergency escape hatch, but that it's really obnoxious to do. Um, in our case, you have to go justify to our chief architect why in this case, no, it's fine that this unit test failed. 
Um, so good, you know, good luck with that. Um, <laughs> and so basically I just, I, I stitch a lot of things at the place where they'll be most impactful, which in our case is at pull request time. So when everybody, somebody is ready to merge a change, they have a series of gates they have to get through with a bunch of automated checks. Um, they happen in parallel. They happen automatically. Some happen for every PR anybody ever makes. Some happen just for certain subsets, right? Certain subsets, the code that are more sensitive um, or that are under ownership of a particular team or that have, you know, special testing requirements. Um, so we just use some, some basic heuristics to tie a set of changes to whatever it is that needs to be done to ensure those changes are safe. Whether that's unit tests, integration so, tests, standing up in environments, wh whatever it looks like. So, so developers can, it's safe for them to learn in that environment or are they, do they have to go into it with a wealth of knowledge and understand how things are going to work or are they, they able to kind of fail, fail forward and understand and learn in the moment? Yeah, it's actually really safe for developers because they they cannot land a change that's not going to meet the bar. They just can't do it. Um, and so part of our job is to make sure that, you know, when, when you have a failure of something, it's obvious and it's actionable. Um, that includes things like making sure the tests are reliable to at least a minimum of 99%, preferably 99.9%. Um, I track my reliability in my tests like I track my reliability in my APIs because uh, they're basically <laughs> very similar. Um, and so making sure that that what you're supposed to do is discoverable and automatic in most cases. And if you have actions to take to remediate issues, that they're very clear. Right. Here's your five unit so that, test that failed. Here's the error messages. Go go fix it. Yeah. So that that monitoring of of the tests, is that for all tests, like security, everything that you're doing, you you check, you monitor the reliability of all of your tests to make sure they're over time, they're doing what they should do? I do, yeah, we, remind, we monitor reliability and runtime as well, because if most of our unit tests execute in 100 microseconds and 1% of our unit tests executes in five seconds, we know, we know where our long pole is. We know what's disproportionately impacting runtimes, just like some you can have long call, long, um, long API calls that are that are ruining your 90th percentile. I track my 90th percentile of my test execution times to look for outliers and potential problems. It's honestly very, very similar. Yeah, yeah. But performance. I mean, you just nailed performance at yeah. the at the the testing layer. So I'm guessing this helps you move forward. I mean, at, at, a, at a faster rate, I mean, this helps with overall team velocity and, and release velocity to be able to optimize at that layer. Absolutely. I mean, when I very, very first joined eons ago, the only automatic bill was the one that happened after merge. And so you would get build breaks two or three times a week. Not because people didn't test locally, but you know, sometimes you miss something, you push a change. So we'd get build breaks two to three times a week. And I don't mean unit test failures. I mean, build breaks. Um, and so we started just building and all of a sudden we didn't have build breaks anymore. So the releases weren't stung up on waiting for somebody to investigate the build break. And then we started with unit test failures. And at first there were a lot of unreliable unit tests. And so there was a lot of velocity lost in reviewing this list of 15 failures and are they good failures or false failures? Um, we'd lose a lot of time there and you lose the whole engineering team's time because if you're blocking a release, you're blocking everybody. Um, and so once we started, then we started doing unit tests in the PRs. And all of a sudden, the unit test failures went to zero once you once you were in a deployment candidate. And so 
um, just by making sure the automated pieces were running consistently at a, and at a time where they were really actionable, relatively low impact, right? It's much cheaper to your velocity to block one engineer who probably did made the problem themselves than it is to block 30 or 40 engineers on a problem that they have no, I think they didn't make it. They have no idea what's happening. Um, it's much, much, much more efficient to, I don't know what do they call this shift left, um, but to push it, push it upstream yeah. to the, to the person who can take action on the failure and the person to whom it is the most relevant. Um, and that frees up the velocity for literally everybody else. Yeah. It's not just shift left for testing and security. It's shift left for responsibility and accountability. <laughs> so that, exactly. that's pretty key. Exactly. You don't, right, so, nobody cares that somebody else broke the build. You just want to know when you broke it. Yeah. Yeah. So you can get to work on fixing it and saving face and, and not have it be an issue. Exactly. So you can fix your mistake. So what does automation look like? Is it is it all pipeline driven or are there other forms of automation across across your approach? Yeah. So automation it looks a little bit like a traditional test pyramid, which some people really, really hate. Some people really like. I think it's a useful visual, um, usual visual diagram of, you know, we have tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of unit tests. We have um, hundreds to thousands of integration tests, right? That require something deployed. That requires some kind of running external resource, um, and then we have, you know, maybe tens to a hundred high-level manual tests. Um, or, you know, semi tests that require a human, right? I, um, and so we have, we have a much smaller set of those. Um, and that, not that they're not important, but they require a human, so they're intrinsically slow. So what? Oh. Yeah, sorry, of course, the dog no is now begging to be let out. Get out of here. Shoo. I <sighs> can't win. <laughs> can't win. My, do my dog did that as well, but my wife just happened to be out in the hallway listening and she quietly opened the door. So, <laughs> <sighs> lucky. Um, so, what are, what are some of the challenges you face while automating this? And, and how does that, what, what, why do you keep some things manual? And, and, and what were the challenges in, in automating the rest? Yeah, so challenges in automating generally come to investment and return on investment. Some things are very, very easy to automate. And, you know, to be honest, most things are very easy to automate. Um, depending on your code architecture, you'll have a, a better time automating at the unit test level or an integration test level. But in general, most things can be automated. But the, there's a difference between most and all. Some things aren't worth, for example, the return on investment. Some things are very difficult to automate. Some things you just have no idea how to do it. Um, and so I find some, pe some people are able to automate everything, especially when they have infinite engineering time. Um, but in practice, there's usually one or two corner cases that you're like, oh, you can just do a quick manual check of this, and it's, it's going to be more efficient. Um, and so that includes uh, sometimes right, you want to go, go take a look at your metrics Go take a look at your, you know, at a, at a set of counters. Make sure they're hooked all the way up to your counter system before you go live. You, you could check that. You could write an automated test for it, but it's probably not worth your time. Um, some security test pass you want to have manual. Some, you know, some static analysis is very easy to do automatically, but you know, plenty of things are not. 
Um, and so there's just, there's every, and end of every code base is a little different. The things that you can't quite automate or aren't worth automating are going to be a little different. But I think it's important to accept the reality that probably you're not going to automate literally everything because we just, most people don't have the engineering budgets for it, right? It's like a 90 10 yeah. rule. Yeah. Priorities, other priorities get in the way. There's just, I mean, we're all shorthanded. We never have enough resources, no matter how. Exactly. How large we grow. So we just so, build. Oh, go ahead. So I just just build in the process the assumption that hey, we might need to stand up some code and have a human look at it. In a lot of cases, you don't, but because it's built into the the capability is built into the process, it just makes it really low friction. Yeah. So how do you how do you organize your teams to to kind of optimize this reality? Yeah, so I don't, I'm not a huge fan of running a traditional style QA org, which I know is sometimes a controversial statement. Um, I'm a big fan of building empowered teams that have really one primary mission and goal they're trying to accomplish. And then letting those teams accomplish, you know, setting them free to accomplish their mission. Um, so that means, you know, supporting them, making sure that they have usable pieces pieces in place, building blocks they can use, whether that's the unit test framework, um, existing CI pipelines. Um, they shouldn't have to invent from scratch, but they should be free to innovate within within their space as, as aligns with their mission. Um, so I try to build you know pretty balanced teams that are very clear and aligned on where they're going and what they're trying to do. Sounds like they have a lot of agency too, but the the overall CICD provides them, well, I wouldn't say just CICD, the dev test SecOps kind of scaffolding helps them optimize within that agency. They have a lot of freedom to do what they need to do, but the, the system helps them out with the rest. Exactly. It's sort of like guardrails. You know, they're guard, hmm. and in the end, the system that we have is guardrails around where they, they really can't go. But within those guardrails, they have a lot of opportunity to say, to set up, you know, narrower guardrails of, hey, my team actually needs to be here. We're going to have some additional special checks to ensure that we're here in this narrow guardrail instead of in the broader, you know, along the broader highway. I like that. I like that. Because sometimes, I mean... I have bad days. I have where times where I need, you know, or, or you're overloaded and your team needs, you know, to, to have a special set of guardrails for this process. To, so, so giving us, you know, additional frameworks and, and scaffolding, I think is pretty key. Exactly. I um, want my free to, teams to be free to test, but if they want to just use the existing pieces, okay, you can just use the existing pieces. You don't have to invent. Uh, that's important agency. And I think that that's, for me, that's what goes with the, the DevOps. That's what it should be is uh, I think a lot of folks look at the, the technical side of what DevOps can be, you know, access, having access to systems across what's happening, but it's really that it's the freedom, the agency, as well as the right access to tools and services and the infrastructure. Exactly. It's the, the, the actual benefit of DevOps is not, yay, you're on Kubernetes or whatever. It's, it's in the agency and the freedom and the creativity that you give your teams to accomplish a goal. Yeah. And, and with the learning that comes with the, the way that you've set up your testing in the pipelines that people can fail and you can learn and you can fail and learn and you can exactly. win and succeed and you can, and that's, that's what education and learning, that's what our schools should be like, is that kind of environment. So exactly. I like that. 
I don't care how many times you fail your PR build. Failed it 30 times. Write different unit tests. Watch them fail horrifically. Iterate and iterate and iterate. It's, it's fine, right? Nobody tracks that. It doesn't matter. You're free to experiment and make as many mistakes as you like because you're not going to affect anybody else. It's just yourself. Yeah. Amen. That's how we learn. Cause I mean, I, I, that's, that's how I've learned to be an engineer or a decent and good engineer over the years is, is that kind of environment that gives me the, the room to, to do me and, and operate like I do each day, but, uh, face some pretty big challenges over and over and, and grow and evolve with those challenges. Exactly. So Go ahead. I like to tell my uh, my soon to be senior engineers that they can't actually become real senior engineers until they've made one horrific mistake in production. <laughs> until they've taken a site down like or you know done done something bad. Yeah. No. We've all we've all had them. That's um, mine. My story in this is I used to run SAP events for mm -hmm. SAP, and I ran Sapphire, which is their fifty thousand person event. And got everything set up for, so I ran registration and, and all of that. And I set up the database. It was a Microsoft SQL server and, and, uh, had it all ready to go night before, stayed up all night, you know, it was groggy. This was back when I still stayed up all night and mm -hmm. four hours before reg opened, I accidentally did. And it was the first time I was using Amazon, uh, web services like in production and trying to prove it would be worthwhile. And I deleted the AMI or the, the oh, no. instance and luckily i had backups but still like to get it all set back up was like another two hours i, w I didn't have as much automation and so yeah i still uh what was yours do you have a similar one Just i for do you i have a million dollar outage Ooh, yeah nice. i was the on-call responsible for our system so our servers were the front of basically the entire serving stack you couldn't get anywhere in any part of our system without our servers we were the we were the thin the thin edge um and i was on call that week and um, i had actually found a crashing bug if we pushed a certain type of config change um and i got together with my manager it was super late and i talked to him i'm like hey so we've got this crashing bug we can't do this type of config change do we want to try to fix it tonight and it was like seven or eight o'clock and he's like uh we can wait till the morning we just you know, it's just you and me we're the people who would do this we just won't do it <laughs> we just won't push this terrible shiny red button and we'll just fix it in the morning um so that was fine and we did this decision but we didn't tell anybody this decision um and meanwhile in the night i'd had a bunch of pages overnight from you know from from uh, our China data, China DC and our, our um, European DCs. And so I was tired. Um, I had, you know, crappy night, five alarms or something. And so we had this big marketing push in the morning, which our team knew about. And um, come morning, uh, we had received, you know, like seven or 7.30 AM from the East Coast people, a request to enable, um, enable something as a part of the marketing push. And oh, by the way, that involved pushing this config change. Um, and I wasn't awake yet because I, had been up four times the previous night and one of my teammates saw the request and took pity on me and said oh i'm an early morning person i'll help melissa out i'll push this config change for her and oh. then crashed every service we had worldwide instantaneously oh. <laughs> and it took hours for it to come back up because we would cascade traffic around the world this was you know that we didn't have this was, it kind of predates a bunch of the edge services that would that would be put in place now we just sent traffic cascading around the world killing data centers until we could cut everything off and bring them up, um, bring up enough to support the traffic load in the middle of our marketing push. So I took the services down worldwide for, I don't know, an hour and a half, two hours. 
it's a million dollar nice work nice <laughs> yeah wow i mean these are the things that that make us who we are right they make you very cautious you don't know why you're cautious until you've done something like that. <laughs> and then you understand why you should be terrified of everything you do in production. <laughs> yeah, I had a I had an interview with a um, gentleman who works on the HTTP standard. He's the chair of the Ooh. HTTP working group and talked about his reputation for saying no and why, you know, there he's got a lot of experience in why he should say no to things and have cautious and think twice about doing things. So uh, I think a lot comes with wisdom and experience. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it, there's in the end, no substitute for some of this hard won experience. Hopefully you don't need a lot of it, but like a little, a little bit. Yeah. And hopefully we don't get too, too jaded along the way. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, one of the things that I, I found interesting about what you're doing and kind of your shift is you've and, and what I like to focus the show on is I really like companies who can tell the internal, you know, the engineering manager stories uh, mm -hmm. about operating APIs. But you also have a lot of experience using other people's APIs sure and do. depending on those. And so that's I love I find this makes the best API providers is people who felt the pain of using other people's <laughs> APIs. Uh, what talk to me about that, that those types of integrations? Are they are they just self service and you integrate and things work, or are they high touch? Do you have relationships with these folks? What do they look like? Yeah, so we have pretty much it's, it's a pretty broad spectrum depending on who the partner is and who our customer is, who who wants the connection. Um, in some cases, we write it because because we have to, because the partner won't or the customer won't. Um, we also publish an SDK. So in some cases, the partner will write against us. Um, and in some smaller cases, the customer will pay a third party to write you know, between the two of us. Um, so we have, we have a pretty broad, pretty equal representation across the three. Uh, my team that I, that I was running did a lot of writing their own integrations against partners. Um, and then we're also the publishers of the SDK that, you know, that people would use to write, um, write against us. What are what are the the biggest areas of friction when it comes to partner integration? Yeah, so the biggest area of friction is that no two APIs look alike, and they don't even look a little bit alike. We have seen literally every API design pattern and anti-pattern that you could possibly ever imagine, um, from APIs that are ninety percent JSON and ten percent XML, but the ten percent XML is totally undocumented, and you only find it in a bunch of weird corner error cases. Um, to APIs that have interesting interpretations of the of the HTTP status codes and what they should mean, um, to APIs with really aggressive rate limiting, to APIs with no rate limiting, uh, APIs you know some of them of course have sane rate limiting. A lot of them, a lot of them are very sane, but we've seen a lot of a lot of really interesting <laughs> interesting choices. Many 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 it, cases it, where documentation doesn't line up with with real life. Yeah, I would say documentation and rate limiting are the two top that I hear from from folks who are in similar uh, situations. Are you able to get them to raise rate limits at any point sometimes in some situations or is that harder to do? We can. So sometimes it depends on if the rate limit is a soft thing or a hard thing. So if the rate limit is, hey, it's a billing tier or it's just in case, usually we can negotiate a change. Um, but sometimes the rate limit is because the part there's a technical block. 
Um, right? We had an issue where we were getting throttled really heavily by a partner because it turns out the shape of the traffic coming from our customer through us was causing um, like a 4x performance uh, performance degradation over what it should have been. Just, you know, sometimes it's the shape of the traffic is the problem, not even the quantity. Um, and so they had to put a really aggressive rate limits in place because the shape was causing a problem until we could um, right, negotiate, <laughs> negotiate a solution that worked for both of us that didn't also involve the customer having to totally reshape the traffic because that's usually not the answer. Yeah. So if, if any of these partners are, are watching, uh, what, what can they do to make your life easier? The best thing that we can always have is really good, accurate documentation. The documentation matches the API. You know, if they have an open API doc, all the better. Um, but the more, the easier it is for engineers to figure out, okay, here's the API I need to call to solve problem X. Here's the parameters. Here's the performance characteristics. Here's what I can expect, um, right? Are there, are the API calls blocking or non-blocking? So I should be waiting for an instantaneous response, but the response is meaningless, or I should be waiting, you know, waiting a hundred milliseconds for a response, but the response is really useful. Um, it doesn't no one isn't necessarily better than the other so much as we know which, and we can then behave appropriately. Yeah. Up-to-date documentation, the number one pain point I hear across the board. And then that rate of change, you know, between versions and, and breaking changes, yes, um, that's is, a big one. is definitely what we hear. Yeah. Some of our larger company partners tend to tend to do breaking changes on us more frequently than we would we would perhaps prefer but that's an advantage to our customers right as we're at least shielding them from that pain it's one thing for us to update our server and then we've matched new api version it's another thing for our partners to have to update their you know their mobile app go through cert again um, and you can't can't always force your customers once they have an app on their phone to update it so it's much, much more painful to have to increment an API version on a on a on an app on a device than it is, you know, server to server. Yeah, that's a really strong, important argument right there. I would say. So I work on uh, a lot of policy and standards. So healthcare, banking. Mm -hmm. um, just did a, a session with uh, the Government Accountability Office, which is uh, or authority, which is out of Congress and regulates how the federal government. Uh, puts data out by APIs mm -hmm. and, and then some of these other conversations are in regards to out of the FTC and regulating Facebook and others, um, specifically the, specifically the case around, uh, Facebook's anti-competitive practices. And then in the healthcare, um, interoperability in there, and I'm impressed that government agencies have come to me and, and asked and said, Hey, we noticed that people are introducing breaking changes and moving fast to open up a competitive to make it harder to stay up with the API so mm -hmm. that the smaller individual companies have a harder time keeping up. And they say may, they notice big players are doing this on purpose. So that's really a, a, a vote of confidence for M particles of the world to be able to be the aggregators and be able to, kind of be the relief valve on this this behavior. Absolutely. I mean, we're extremely cautious when it comes to breaking changes in our APIs. I don't I can't think of the last time we did one. I'm just, I know we have. Um we're just we take a long, careful, very deliberate choice and you know, stand usually we just choose to stand up stand up a new version and then deprecate the old version three years later, however long it takes. 
making sure we're monitoring that we're not <laughs> we're not going to accidentally kill some major version that's deployed on somebody's eight-year-old Roku system or what have you. Um, yeah, we're operating because yeah, you... it's not our data; it's our customers' data, and so they trust us with the integrity of that data, and we take that very, very seriously. Yeah, you're a, a, a shock absorber in between that, I would say. Not only are you aggregating, you're you're acting as that absorber for the for the change in the velocity to when you're driving down the country road and the exactly. and, and all the potholes make, you know, that's uh that's important. Exactly. Um, talk to me about security. How do you view view security across your operations? Yeah, so I'm not all right, we have a security <laughs> a security department, we have a yes. CISO. I work in conjunction to enable them. So I'm definitely not gonna be able to give you the the holistic and perfect answer. Um, but my view, mm -hmm. my job as a part of the with dev test SecOps um, strategy is to help security get the pieces in place that they need to to minimize their manual workload. So that includes from really simple, silly things like making sure that secret scanning is on so nobody checks in secret keys. It's a very simple automated check. Um, you know, the simplest possible security static analysis you could do, but really impactful. Um, to you know more more advanced static analysis vulnerability checks. Um, nothing is perfect, of course, um, but anything we can do to help is is a plus. Yeah. It's uh, I, I didn't expect you to, to this is not a, a security API security conversation. <laughs> so I just always like to hear how how folks view security and and and, you know, try to I, I think shifting left, as you said, you know, and making it, you know, so so the dev test sec ops, you know, is I think that's a key part. It's something we all have to do. But none of us are. Well, some of us are experts, but most of us are not going to be experts. So I think exactly. uh, dev test sec ops is, is important. Exactly. It's the same thing with tests, right? And a lot of us aren't experts, but we can build on the work of experts and we can make the experts work more impactful. And that's why we've got test and sec in the DevOps thing, because it's about taking those experts and applying their expertise as broadly as possible and as efficiently as possible. Well, and that's where, yeah, and that's where your reliability at the test layer, I, I'm fascinated by that comes in is, you know, what's working, like, mm -hmm. and we can optimize that. And, you know, so I can count on that as a, as a tester, I don't have to be the best, but I know we can keep improving and understanding the performance and reliability of our tests. Exactly. It doesn't have to be perfect, right? Just like somebody claiming 100% uptime and 100% reliability is just not measuring, right? We all, we all know they're not met. There's no APIs at literally 100%. Um, no test is at 100% reliable, but they can get close. Yeah, agreed. So, so you talked about not, not every API is the same. You know, there's, you know, you could, use 10 different image APIs and they can be wildly different. Mm -hmm. And so I spoke a little bit about the standards work I do, I do, but it's hard to convince API providers to use common patterns. And, and I don't want there to just be regulatory. Hey, you have to use this within an industry. I would love for folks to adopt common patterns. Do you have any advice or is is mparticle going to be become the de facto standard in in a lot of these domains? I I wish we I wish we would I wish we could we had previously actually done some work around this with GDPR and I, the name of the specific yeah. initiative we spun up is escaping me but we had spun up an initiative um, to 
put a standard together, us and a couple of our other partners of, hey, here's what these privacy API requests should look like. Here's the standard. Here's the frameworks that will help you implement against them. So it's not such a burden on you that you have to reinvent the wheel um, in what, you know, what a data deletion request looks like. Um, and I, I don't, I wish I could remember where that was. Um, but yeah, I would love to be able to publish, hey, like here's a really good standard for what an event looks like, a, a media event, right? A commerce event and to just have agreement, right? It doesn't have to be our standard. I tell this to my to, to my teams and my manager all the time. I don't care if my standard or my idea wins, so long as we have a standard and an idea, right? Nobody, everybody's got slightly different views of what the perfect API is. And I really don't, you know, I don't want to micromanage for perfect, but good enough will get us good enough. Yeah. So, I mean, what's the scope of effects of this time-wise? I mean, are you guys going to save money, time, resources if, if things were standardized, if every image API was similar? Where's I mean, the biggest return on investment there? I mean, if every image API was similar, it would be very, very simple for us to write integrations with our partners in the ecosystem. It would really greatly expand right? the, the ability to stand up a new startup who is you know, doing whatever on image processing um, and to have them integrate really easily into an existing ecosystem as opposed to having to start scratch and then beg other people to write against them and their custom API, which, you know, God help us, maybe it's on, maybe it's a WebSocket API that's live streaming or something. All right, because yeah. you can't even assume people are going to be over HTTP2. They may be over a WebSocket. They may be over a custom protocol. Yeah. We definitely have a couple partners that are SFTP uploads. Oh, yeah. So you really, FTP's really can't. an API. Yeah, it's an API. You just you can't make yeah. any any assumptions about the basics. I would be delighted if we could settle on yes, it's HTTP one one and it's JSON and it has these few fields and the rest is just a blob. That would be miles and miles and miles above you know the current world of infrastructure that we have right now across all of yeah, you know all I, the whole breadth of this. I feel your pain. One of the successful startups I did. Uh, back in the day was called is called idx broker so is aggregating mm -hmm. real estate and you call up a multiple listing service and oh do you have an api oh yeah we have an api and they send you their ftp location <laughs> and and the, and the credentials here you go here's your api access and then they send you the legal terms of service of requirements of how you can use that data what you can <laughs> access and it's not manage like through an API management layer or anything because it's mm -hmm. FTP but right so it's a manual regular regulation of how you use this data how many times you can pull and you feel like a lot of these servers are just in you know Uncle Bob's basement on some cinder blocks probably and, you know that kind of thing yeah <laughs> yeah but they're still APIs uh, they're still APIs and that's what uh yeah, and and this is continuing to evolve. So you said WebSockets, you know. Um, so what was our release for Postman a couple weeks ago? We released a WebSockets client, and then we released a, a Wizdl editor, so you can edit Ooh. Soap all at the same time. Ooh, so. I think I think I have an ending that I need to run. Yeah, where, where no, were you, you six years it. ago when I was pulling out WebSockets as a, as a part of? services oh trust me the the issue asking for websockets has been there the entire time postman's been there and we're just now tackling it so so how do you prioritize what integrations you offer next is it is it customers screaming for it is it 
some grand strategy? How do you decide from an integration standpoint what, what comes up? Yeah, so we have a, a prioritization matrix, of course, based on you know what, how many customers want something, how difficult or easy it is to implement, um, and then what you know strategically, what customers would we would we want to pick up who might be interested if we support integrate you know integration X, um, and then based on that matrix of inputs, we end up with a prioritized list. Uh, you know, some things we can do ourselves, some things we can, sometimes we can convince a partner to do it. Um, sometimes, again, sometimes we can get a third party to do it. And so based on, nice. based on who wants it and how much. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, um, I, that's interesting to watch as things keep, the landscape keeps expanding our needs keep, you know, the sprawl continues, like what, what are customers going to demand, want, need, and how that, mm -hmm. that algorithm of yours will, will handle. I like it. Yeah, we don't want to be caught chasing, right? We don't want to always be behind the curve on integration. So in some cases, of course, what how, however many customers are asking for it is important, but sometimes you need to be a little more strategic around. We, we want to go after these new customers who are only be interested in us if we have this new integration. So working at, at uh, MParticle, how, how have you managed to keep challenging yourself while working there? You've changed roles, but how else are you challenging yourself? Yeah, so changing roles has been a big part of it. Um, the work that I'm doing has changed really significantly from you know day one to, to today. Um, my first year, I was writing writing a bunch of code, really elbows deep in the code base, and you know writing integrations, working on integrations, um, and that switched over to building and running a little really small team, and that was a totally different set of challenges. Um, while still keeping myself pretty technical and maybe not elbows deep, maybe only wrist deep in the code. Um, and to what I'm doing now, which is a lot of strategic planning, um, not even so much day-to-day -day management, which I do, but I have, you know, I have managers who are doing the day-to-day -day management, and now I'm focused very much on strategy and buy-in and making sure that we are anticipating the needs of our customers and the needs of our of our fellow engineers, because my group is we are the servants of the other engineers, and in you know, not just our customers' engineers, but our engineers as well. Um, so making sure that we are serving the needs of everybody else in a way that is efficient, right? Sometimes solving them before they know that they've got a problem. Um, so these are just, it's such a different set of skills that I've been building all this time that it's kept me just really, really engaged and really interested growing a lot. I like that. I, it's, it's, that's why I'm in the API space. I love the diversity of challenges and problems and it keeps keeps me interested otherwise i don't think i would stay in the technology sector for much longer i would go get a gardening job or i don't know farm you know something agriculture right. i don't know because <laughs> yeah that's um, my hobby flowers keep me happy oh uh, <laughs> nice nice that was going to be one of my next questions what else do you uh you use to take your mind off work you got your flowers, what else? I do. So for those of us who are who are watching the video, you can see the, the latest cut out of my garden. Um, I do a lot Ooh. of gardening. Dahlias are beautiful Ooh. this time of year. Yeah. Um, that... a, lot of, a lot of time relaxing. I mean, it's not exactly relaxing. It's still a lot of work, but um, physical work. Um, I actually started, I take, uh, I take a lot of one-on-ones from the garden because I find them more effective in one-on-ones if I'm not subject to slack distraction. Um, yeah. So yeah. I've really enjoyed work from home because I can I can take one-on-ones in the garden. We used to do walk-around one-on-ones, which you know, similar concept, get away from the distraction of computers and really focus on the other person. Um, 
So I find that garden one-on-ones are also fill that same niche. I can see that. That that'd be huge. So one of my first jobs as a teen, so I was probably 13, 14, was a lady down the street was uh weeding and and working in her dahlia garden. Like it was a quarter mm. acre. Wow. Her prize reality and she would sit at the window of her house and watch and yell at me if I did anything wrong or anything so like but I really liked it because it was beautiful it was an amazing like whole just colorful world so I really they're one of one of my favorite flowers yeah I I only have maybe 10 square feet of dahlia but I love them very much it's been a shockingly successful year this year for them I'm crazy. It's crazy. The colors, the shapes, the site, like the, the dimensions, it's, um, they're, they're, they're pretty amazing. I mean, flowers in general are, but they're specifically, I really yeah. like. Diversity is crazy. So how is, uh, you know, I, I hope at some point I can stop asking this question, but I'm, I'm really fascinated by the different answers I get. How has the pandemic impacted your, your work world and, and, and your team's work world? Yeah. Um, so I have two little kids. Um, they're seven and four. Uh, and so that was a huge change, right? They were, they were generally not in the house. I'm obviously not a stay at home, uh, parent, neither is my husband. Um, and so figuring out, okay, now the kids are home all the time. How do we continue to, to work? Right. But also to be effective parents of happy children. Uh, that was a huge, 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 um, transition to make. Um, I'm glad that, you know, I'm glad that it, that it was my transition to make because I think it helps to build um, awareness and empathy for everybody else who had to go through that as well. You know, my directs who had to go through it, my other teammates, my peers, um, the fact that I went through it, but was able to be in a prominent enough position where I could be pretty frank about, Hey, like I can't be in these meetings this afternoon. My kid's having a meltdown Um, or, you know, I'm going to be in this meeting today. And by the way, there's a toddler on my lap um, that I, I'm able to kind of normalize some of that for everybody else who's right to reflect the reality of a lot of people's lives on the ground. So true. So true. I, uh, I'm sending my, so I have one daughter, she's 20. Um, she's in the room next to me here. Uh, but she's going to Seoul, South Korea on Sunday for a year Ooh. going to Yonsei university. And I'm, my anxiety levels are through the roof this week wow. because of that. So it's like, you know, I'm happy for her and I'm proud of her, but I'm also sending my, my baby to another country for an entire year where I, I don't have a lot away. of control. So, yeah. So, um, but it's good. And in a pandemic. So that's, I think most of my anxiety comes from there. So, um, what, a what would you say when it comes to Melissa, what's the personality trait that has benefited you most in your career? Um, I think the the most beneficial thing has been um, being curiosity. And I talk about it with my daughter, with my seven-year-old. I talk about it as what's your superpower, um, right? What's, what's the thing that you are both love and are really good at that's a part, that's a, a part of you. And for me, that's learning, figuring out how things work, um, how to take them apart, put them back together again, how to manipulate it, what the boundaries of the system are, what it can do. Um, I really enjoy learning. And so like, that's all we do all day is everything, everything that I interact with is a system, right? It's, it's a system with harder parts or squishier parts, but it's still a system. 
And so figuring out how all of these systems work and how we can make them more efficient, how we can make them better, whether that's a team, right? A team is a system. A set of teams is still a system. Um, right? The build system is a system. The work, the workflow, everything that we do is is a system. And so being able to apply this love of, of learning and this really passion I have for figuring out how these systems work um, has really, once, once I figured out how to harness that has been really useful for me, um, right? I'm not... I like technology. I like technology a lot, um, but I'm not, you know, I'm not the person who's going to write code all day and all night because that's my passion. I like it. It's not my passion. My passion is systems and figuring out how systems work and how to make them work better. And through talking with you, I would say an, an important characteristic of that. And you mentioned the technology is, is the human piece of it. You, you talked about the man, where the manual process comes in, where the agency of your team members comes in. So the, the, the role of the human being in these systems. Yes, the humans are intrinsic and important part of the system. But the systems are for the benefit of people. People are a part of the systems. Um, and I think it's it's folly to try to divorce all the things that make us human from trying to run, like trying to run these systems. Instead, it's, you know, I prefer to try to harness those strengths, right? Empathy, creativity, even, <laughs> even if something as simple as rubber ducking. Right? That's a fundamentally human thing that results in better output. I like it. I like it. Well, I think for for dev test secops, I almost uh, got to think, say it carefully. <laughs> dev test secops. Um, I don't know if I'd pass your 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 test to be able to say it with a straight face because I'm always going to snicker a little <laughs> bit. I think when I say it, um, I, it really shows, and I think that's that's the the DevOps part that I think is super critical is the human piece of that. And, and for me, APIs, this is what, why, uh, what attracted me to the API space. And so I think your, your description of, of, of your, your whole build system and, and the dev dev test secops that, that kind of uh, embodies that. um, I think it's something that there's a lot that folks can learn from. So I appreciate you sharing it all with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me here today. I love, you know, I love talking about it and evangelizing for making better systems for people. Yeah, well, keep doing what you're doing. You're you're bridging a lot of uh, you know, important things and I think reducing friction for folks, making people's life easier, you're making the machine work more efficiently. Um, you're connecting the important, you know, data points. So keep up the good work. And uh, I appreciate you being with me today. Yeah, thank you. We'll have to talk again soon. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your week and, uh, and we'll talk soon. 